Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted today to be with our guest, Christopher Washington. He's the Provost and Executive Vice President for Academic Affairs for Franklin University, a private nonprofit institution of higher education. So Christopher, thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I think you left out that I'm also a proud fellow of the Innovative Leadership Institute, and that I also contribute to Forbes on the Nonprofit Council. So those are some things that are really important to me as well. So today I get the wonderful opportunity, Maureen, to interview you and to discuss the themes that you've identified through all the work that you do through your radio program, through working with executives, business leaders, global leaders, authors, and academics to identify these wonderful themes, and we get a chance to talk about them today. I'm really excited. Let's jump in. I'd like to talk about your first theme, which is the idea that business models need to focus not only on delivering results today, but also on building the capacity of the people and the organization in meeting the needs of a broad stakeholder group. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Over the past few years, I've been thinking about ESG board governance, so environmental, social, and governance, which is a designation that many large for-profit organizations around the world are really moving toward. It's being led often by folks in Europe less required for small to medium-sized businesses, and yet as smaller businesses are suppliers to ESG companies, I believe that smaller businesses will also begin to be held to those standards. You know, I think of things like conscious capitalism and that we as people running businesses and consulting to businesses are being now held to a standard of providing purpose for our employees, attending to environmental impact and healthcare standards. And we also know that our younger employees especially are wanting to work with organizations that are more conscious. So from the board level down to our younger employees, There are a lot of stakeholders that are now saying our most successful businesses, the ones we want to fund, so large banks are requiring ESG for their loans or they're giving favorable loan rates for companies who are meeting ESG standards. So if I want to get capital at good rates and if I want to get the highest performers in our younger age demographics, I'm needing to think about shifting from a traditional focus on shareholder value to more of this ESG focus. You have a lot to unpack here. There's the idea that you have broader stakeholder groups to consider. And then you have the notion of employees who have vested interest in a variety of topics, younger generations having interests in certain things like social sustainability and environmental sustainability, and older workers. In fact, there are like five different generations in the workforce today. And I can imagine the leadership implications of that, trying to address their needs as they work to address the organization's needs. As we think about the lifespan extending and folks living to be 100 Some of our folks who are in the workplace now will live to be 100. They won't necessarily retire at 55 or 65. It may be 85. So if we think about five generations now, it could be seven generations. So how you work at 85 is certainly going to be different than you work now. And our young folks coming into the workplace 20 or 30 years from now will also be working differently. You talked about the need to broaden consideration of stakeholder groups. There is an example of supply chain challenges today that helped me think through that idea, that we have to think about not only our customers and what they need, but also our suppliers. And there's been a lot of challenges in that, sort of creating a volatility around getting raw materials or supplies in order for organizations to work. Are you seeing leaders have to adapt to these unique challenges and thinking about their stakeholders? They absolutely do. And supply chain is a brilliant example As leaders, I need to think about my workforce and my supplier workforce, but I also need to think about the chain in between. So now I have to worry about who unloads ships in California. You know, what was it last year where we had a barge stuck in the Suez Canal? Things that we never considered in the past, it just worked. Years ago, we optimized for efficiency, lean, taking excess out of the supply chain, all of those things. Now we optimize for volatility 
and the work we did to lean systems out will now be counterproductive. It's interesting that during this time, we have to consider volatility, not just efficiencies. That leads to sort of a different mindset for a leader, wouldn't you say? You're thinking about the idea that you know, how do we survive or thrive during periods of volatility? Some organizations have done that quite well, and some individuals have as well, but others have really struggled with that. Franklin University, where I taught for the first time as a university faculty member, taught students 20 plus years ago about agility. Now leaders have to have the ability to look forward to what's happening. And sometimes look forward is long-term trends. Other times it's look at what's happening in California now. We're seeing delays and we're seeing that those continue to extend. It's not like a few ships backed up. Now it's continuing to grow. All of us are impacted by that challenge. So that agility personally and professionally is now and will continue to be crucial for effective leaders. What sort of qualities do you think leaders should develop to cultivate this kind of agility, to deal with the uncertainties, the volatility that they might experience in their supply chains or other conditions? I talk often about the idea that leaders now need to take on the mindset of the scientist. One of the things I love about scientists is they're not perpetuating the status quo. They're always looking at what's changing. How do they solve the next problem? So they're leveraging data. They develop a hypothesis. They don't need to be right. That's one of the things I love about science is I prove or disprove my hypothesis. And often disproving my perspective is as valuable as proving it. Better to find out where I'm wrong and correct than continue down a course of action that's going to be incorrect. On this topic, I like to cite Dr. Fauci, and I know a lot of people will have different perspectives about what happened during the pandemic. What I saw, and this is a non-political comment, is the scientist who shared the best information he had and as science developed globally and learned more about what was happening with the pandemic, the guidance changed. It wasn't that he was bad or wrong. It's that the science tells us and the science leads our actions. And so we as leaders, if we take that same perspective, it's not about being right or wrong. It's that the evidence takes us to the next step and we continue to course correct. Now, good scientists also aren't flopping all over the place like a fish pulled out of the ocean. They are directionally correct and they continue to refine what they're doing. Maureen, this idea that leaders and executives are becoming more scientific in their approaches to work is very consistent with your second theme, or trend, I should say, which is we're changing the nature of work with workplaces becoming more experimental and data-driven. Uh, that's pretty fascinating. What do you mean by that? And let's talk about the implications for leaders. Leaders certainly have strategic plans and have a general direction. And if you're paying attention to trends and what's happening in the workplace, we are continually adapting. So I'm not going to continue to deliver on a plan that's outdated. So I need to rely more on the data because if I think about scenario plannings, so I have a direction and then I have the scenarios. And again, I go back to what I taught in my early strategic planning classes was, here's my direction, here are the scenarios, what's likely to happen? And I put probabilities on each of those. And I also put leading indicators. So I know if something's likely to take me in a different direction. And when I first identify it with the leading indicators, I can quickly or as quickly as possible, change course. And part of that allows me to be ahead of my competition. It also allows me to serve my stakeholders everywhere from my employees so they can keep productive jobs and support their families. So my customers or clients continue to get my product or service. So I continue to earn revenue. So I'm meeting my financial commitments. And so I'm responding to my community because our businesses are interwoven and our nonprofits are interwoven into the community. So I am, as a leader, responsible for seeing things earlier and course correcting more often. You know, that's fascinating, Maureen. I'd have to provide a personal example of this. My colleagues and I, over the past five years, our executive team, we're getting more sophisticated in understanding data. 
my colleagues who are involved in data analysis, they're getting more sophisticated and using tools to help us see phenomena that's occurring through the data. It's enabling us to make more effective decisions, but more importantly, it's also enabling us to test new strategies. We have the courage to engage in more pilot projects, for example, to try out new business models or uh, new methods together. And it's a function of having good information to go on. And I think a lot of my colleagues out in the world are really thinking in this way. How do we know what's going on from the data that we have available? And also, let's try some things out and see if it works or not. And that, to me, is one way that organizations become more agile. And to your point, organizations that have good data and are willing to pilot ideas are able to adapt much more quickly. So as a university, you know the demographic data of Gen Zs. What's the population size? What's the probability that they go to college? What areas will they likely focus on? Then we know the generation after them who were going through early school during the pandemic. That's going to shape their behavior. How will they learn differently than prior generations? And that'll shape everything from the buildings you buy and outfit to how you invest in remote learning. It's also true that we're engaging with our stakeholders more, consistent with theme number one. What are they thinking? What do they need from us? And how do we bring them to the table to share those ideas? Couple their insights with the insights we're getting from data and experience, and it can lead to some really provocative and new programs, approaches to our work. Well, and again, I'll use your examples that Franklin, for each of its major programs, has advisory boards. Absolutely. And you're looking at certification programs because of the changes in the industry and workforce re-education. So you're doing a lot with that data, both piloting and changing programs that really help respond to not only our younger folks, but also people more senior whose jobs are just going to change and go away. Well, yeah, and listening to our stakeholders, I said, you know, we can't wait four years for someone to get a degree to help us with IT. I need an IT person within the next three months. And so what kind of educational programs can we offer to support that? And I think that kind of thinking about how you engage your stakeholders, what are their needs, and how do you work together to respond to those needs is really something that's very consistent with your, your first two trends, approaching things from a broader per stakeholder perspective, and secondly, thinking about it scientifically, trying things out to see if they work. Because we can't afford to invest in each of the bets because we know they won't all pay off. Unless you're a big gambler, small bets win. Maureen, your third theme has to do with the weight of the aggregate change that we're experiencing in our world. The uncertainty, the chaos, the ambiguity, the complexity, and what that means to individuals. Specifically, you talk about the mental health and the business landscape, business organizations paying more attention to the impacts of mental health of people in their workplace as a result of all this change. Could you talk a little bit about what that means as a theme and what are leaders doing about it? I don't know that I can speak to what they are doing. I can speak to what needs to happen. We've talked about resilience for years and the rate of change. And with COVID, especially the uncertainty and anxiety. So According to the CDC in April of 2021, during August 2020 through February 2021, the percentage of adults with recent symptoms of anxiety and depressive disorder increased from 36.4 to 41.5%. The statistics I've heard since then are even higher. I've heard up to 45% of people are self-reporting anxiety and depression. That's almost half of our population. So think about everyone from a parent who still has to go to in-person work and their children are home doing homeschool because schools were closed for a year. So how do you make sure your kids are safe? If you have to go to work, where do they go when childcare is closed down or less accessible and significantly more expensive? There are lots of factors that have dramatically increased the anxiety of working parents and increased of leaders as they're trying to figure out how they get the work done. We have a obvious a significant labor shortage and the focus on keeping your people safe. How do you navigate the vaccine mandates for people? There is no black and white answer of just fire them if they don't get a shot or get to work and we don't care about what you're doing with your children. Those approaches that work before don't work now. We don't have enough people to do the job. So the old you're lucky to work for me thing isn't going to work. And absenteeism goes up. 
physical health issues go up. So more expensive for healthcare for organizations that provide it. The economic insecurity also creates anxiety and depression. So it's the perfect storm of this range of issues impacting the precious humans who work for the organization and make it go. And it is now at a point that we can't ignore it. I saw the 2021 International Labor Organization report. And in that report, they talk about a number of these issues. And they also talk about how these challenges fall heavily on women in particular, who are caregivers, often responsible for their children's education and support. That's at least half of the workforce. When you think about women in this market, what should organizational leaders do to recognize these challenges and how they uniquely fall on some of their workforce and provide conditions that support uh, workers under these conditions? So I think women and people of color both were hit much harder as an aggregate group. And each business organization is different. So if you're working in a chemical plant, you have to show up. If you are working in an office-related job, often organizations can grant more flexibility. Where they can, it's really helpful. Now, I'm talking to a broad range of folks in leadership roles, and often even leaders are saying, yeah, I don't know how I got it done before, but I don't want to go back to the office full time. And I don't need to. And I realize that there is value to being together sometimes. I'm not saying it's an all or none. I think there really is a middle path that can be tailored to the organization or pockets in the organization. And so you'll have some people whose jobs require that they show up. Everything from baggage handlers to people working in plants to folks in hospitals who are working with sick patients. You can't phone it in. There is telehealth and there is, if you're getting chemotherapy have to show up and someone has to administer it. So I think we have, I believe it's 60% of our jobs still require some in-person contact. Then the question is, can we do four 10-hour days? Are there creative ways to allow people to job share? And in some cases, the answer is clearly no. If you're loading baggage on a plane, you, you, you have, have to, to show be up. there. <laughs> yes. And there are, again, going to be creative options for people to navigate the challenges they're facing. And I think it's the employer's opportunity to help identify those and help employees move toward them. And those workplaces will be winning in the talent competition. I know that there are people who have employers who've required that they come back to the workplace. Mm -hmm. And that's been a real tough challenge for them mm -hmm. to get back into those old routines, given the fact that we're not out of this yet. Mm -hmm. There's still the impacts of COVID. There are more flexible work arrangements, but it's also true that there are people being asked to do what they've always done. And I suspect there are neurological impacts of this expectation and a need to build neurological resilience. So I think about some of my own personal practices when I'm under stress. I can't put it all on the boss to say, hey, here's some things you need to do. Sometimes I need to figure out what works for me, whether it's to meditate or to take a long walk with my dog or take breaks at work. Any sort of ideas or advice you might give to leaders who are interested in encouraging people to consider their own personal welfare and wellness? So I think you hit on a couple things that are really important there. And it's moving from the victim stance as an employee and a leader, my boss made me, or the organization made me, or the government made me, to given the constraints I have, how am I able to respond? And building resilience across the spectrum, as you brilliantly point out, neurological resilience. And there are things I can do. Even under the worst of conditions, I get to control how I think about things. Not easy, but I do get to control that. And it requires strong practices. So whether it's a spiritual practice and prayer, whether it's meditation and just, I'm a big fan of meditation and the idea that just like I work out at the gym or lift weights, I build muscles. I do the same thing with my brain through meditation. So I meditate in the evening. I listen to specific music that's intended to build my brain capacity and I do the count to 100, 100 breaths in and out. So it's about 10 minutes and I lose track. But the more I can build that capacity to stay focused, the more I'm able to work through distractions, but also manage my thinking. That when something negative happens, 
I can say, tag it and file it. And we've all worked with people we find frustrating and things that we just make us really angry. But continuing to focus on that thing that's making me angry isn't helpful. It releases all kinds of chemicals and cortisol and adrenaline and and it physiologically lowers my capacity to think well and respond well. So the more I can manage how I think and what I think about and focus on things like, so I'm frustrated and I used to give myself five minutes. You can go stomp around outside in the yard. You can play with the dog. You can do whatever. And you're allowed to be angry. Then that shifts to what am I grateful for? So even that thing that I'm angry about, you know, sometimes it's just that person's not mine. They're not living in my house. They're not, I may have to work with them, but boy, do I get to send them home to somebody else. You know, that may be the thing I'm grateful for with some folks where I don't have to deal with them often. Or what's the good thing that that person brings? So moving from the frustration, which I can allow, but not obsess on, and then pivot to gratefulness, reframe, refocus, and go back to something productive. You know, I wondered if I was the only executive who thinks about reframing situations in my own mind. Sometimes I get into a mindset where, oh, I must do this report. I have to do this report. And then I realize I get to do that report. And it's just a shift in the way I think about it that really changes my disposition altogether regarding the nature of the work and the people I work with. It's a huge tool. It sounds simple and it sounds almost naive, but what it does to the chemicals in our body isn't naive. It's huge. That shift is a really important tool that many people don't use, don't have access to. So I was cocooned at home during the pandemic, safely, and then, like so many other people, went back to the workplace. As we started thinking about the workplace, a healthy workplace that allows for social interaction, we started thinking about our physical space differently too. And I'm not sure that enough leaders think about the ways they can manipulate, change, improve the workspace to foster engagement and healthy practices. I wondered if you've seen any unique examples of how people are changing the workplace. You know, we've added, for example, a room where you can do weightlifting and exercise and where we expected so much social distance, we might put some stimulus in the room that enable people to communicate with one another. You know, it's those kinds of things that I think can create more healthy environments at work and have the workplace be a desirable destination away from a safely cocooned home. I don't know if you've seen anything in that way. A little bit less, but as we think about everybody doesn't come to the office every day, Yeah, we get more physical space. I started out having a cubicle with high walls and then I had an office and there is an amount of quiet that I require to get my work done. So either I have to put on headphones and really loud noise canceling music when people are being boisterous as people do when they get excited working on a project that we now get to go back to conference rooms to have meetings and conversations and allow more distance between people. And yet the lower kind of a shared workspace Mm -hmm. allows me to see people and think about in our little workspace, we've upgraded the visual image of our offices And we just got a new conference table and we do sit around the conference table a lot of the time and we'll grab our laptops and sit and work together and we can come back to our private space when we want to. I like your new conference table, by the way. (laughs) I think it has a Hawthorne effect on me. You know, you, you turn the lights on, I get excited. You had a new conference table, I get excited. But we do have to think about how we refresh and renew our spaces that have an impact on the mental attitudes and, and sometimes the aptitudes of people. And the norms. That it is okay to renegotiate our agreements about how we work together, that we don't get so close. For a lot of people, that physical closeness is uncomfortable. It feels unsafe. I went to a conference and people had different color wristbands, and it was a hug, don't hug, six feet apart. So the wristband signified how others want it to be treated. Mm-hmm. Oh, Interesting. Again, it seems simplistic, but it gives a nod to we care about your sense of safety and yours may be different than mine. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Your fourth trend is something that's being written about in the literature quite often. 
And it has to do with this idea that we have a talent shortage, that organizations will likely continue to experience a shortage of qualified employees, and they need to do something about it. How do they reskill, upskill their current workforce? How do they make themselves attractive to new employees so that they can be adaptive to the conditions that we face today? What sort of things are you seeing relative to this trend and what can leaders do about it? We've hit a lot of it. The one that comes to my mind right now is this talent shortage is not fixed in the next year. You know, we thought it was when we stopped paying unemployment, the larger benefits, it would change. It's not changing. Fewer women in the workplace, people have made decisions, and some industries aren't going to have access to the labor force they used to. So more use of artificial intelligence, robotic process automation. I think some organizations are going to need to accelerate the use of technology. And it's interesting because a few years ago, it seemed like there was an ethical challenge with if I automated too much... I'm going to displace employees, and often we displace the lowest paid employees. So who bears the burden of that reskilling? These are the folks who don't necessarily have a savings account, can't take three months off to go get a certification. That dynamic, I think, has changed when we can't find employees. Now companies that are of the size that they can make these investments are doing and will continue to do, and some of that technology will also trickle down to smaller organizations. So I think technology is one. I think attending to things like we're talking about, more flexibility where it's possible, attending to the physical space, treating people like they're valuable human beings, not parts of an economic equation. Nobody wants to go to work and be a cog in a machine. They want to feel valued. And employers, in some cases, have always been doing great things, right? So there were better ones and there were worse ones. I think our worst ones, if they don't make that shift, current employees and potential employees are going to vote with their feet. You know, we see up to 95% of employees are considering leaving their jobs. 95%. So if you are not an employee-friendly organization, if you're not feeling the pain now, you will. There's a lot to unpack here because you have attracting employees. Then you have the notion of what you do to keep them. And then you have the idea of if the work is changing, what do you do to upskill and reskill them? I want to talk about the attracting employees for just a moment. I read an article the other day that talked about the role of AI in uh, human resource selection, in talent selection, and how through these processes, we're ruling out a lot of people who could potentially work in that environment through the AI processes. If certain keywords aren't on your resume, you get screened out. Are women, minorities, uh, young people disadvantaged through this process? And should we really rethink the way we hire people with the assumption that maybe I won't get someone who's 95% qualified for the job, but maybe 60% qualified, and I need to do something to upskill them? I don't know if you have any particular thoughts on this subject. The adage remains true that I can teach people skills, but I can't teach them the mindsets. So if someone's motivated, if they're ethically inclined, those are things I absolutely hire for. And I think of technologies like there's a company, Higher Directions, and they have a position success indicator. Employees take a short assessment. It's 10 minutes probably or 15 minutes. And then the employer fills out the job requirements. And so there are tools like that. And one of the things I like about those is they are non-discriminatory in that you're not sending in a photo. If your name is Jamal, you're not treated differently than if your name is Fred. It eliminates a lot of the things that human bias can address, and it looks from a data-driven perspective. You can't pack it with keywords. So there are tools, I think, that are highly valuable, and there's a broad range of them. So that is one of many. Predictive Index is another one. There are some other spinoffs and partner organizations, but using validated and credible, because I think there are other tools like that that look at your Myers-Briggs type and associate them with the kind of job you'll take and thrive in. And I think those are problematic versus the position success indicator looks at your operational orientation. So how do I function at work versus am I introverted or extroverted? 
Yeah, you remind us that some of these tools that are used today can certainly increase efficiencies, but we have to be careful on their use because we could rule out very talented people who are older who want to come in and change careers or who have a certain ability or disability who could be very viable candidates for jobs. There's just so much there that we have to be careful about when we use these tools. Yeah, one of the other things that makes me think of when you talk about people with varying abilities, I think one of the blessings of a talent shortage is we now draw from a broader pool. So people who were excluded before for things like disabilities, if you have a mobility challenge and you need to go into an office, that excludes you from that job. Or location challenges. You have aging parents or any of the reasons that would keep someone in a geographic area that isn't thriving. Trailing spouses, you know, higher income, many families choose the primary wage earner based on economics. The secondary wage earner may be an incredibly talented person who's been excluded from moving up the career ladder because of geographics. That challenge is now diminished significantly in many roles. Maureen, you talked earlier about the retention of existing employees and the large percentage of employees who are considering moving on. And there's actually been real mobility studies where upwards of 35% of employees have left one industry to go to another. There's net ins and outs of industries as a result of this pandemic and the flexibility that workers provide, et cetera, that you discussed. But it makes me think, you know, what are some of the things we can do to keep our employees? One thing that we consider is training and development as a job growth opportunity with so much of a transition to artificial intelligence, machine learning, technology in the workplace. The balance of work is expected within the next four to five years to be about 50-50 humans and machines interacting with one another to get work done. And so with that comes incredible development opportunities. Not all employers are committed to that kind of development. And perhaps if they did, it might retain more employees. I don't know what your thoughts are about that proposition. I always give the caveat, some can't afford it. But for those who can, a lot of my work is around helping people develop and evolve. So I am absolutely a fan and we live it. We have several interns and they have an intern training program. And so we invest even in our most junior people. They get to work on projects they like. We're not quite 3M, but we do have 5% time that they get to work on things that are interesting to them and they get paid for that. And we get to harvest what they've learned learning technology, doing things they're passionate about. The other is from Gen Z's, we're learning a lot about being community focused. So is our organization a good community partner? And do we give our employees opportunities? If we think of something like Meals on Wheels, there are organizations that have roots, their company pays them to go deliver meals as a team. It's a great team building opportunity. Junior achievement, people get to go teach classes with young folks. It is an opportunity for the participants to team build and grow and connect with the community and something they care about. There's learning and growth. There's meaning and purpose. There's flexibility. I think there are levers many organizations have. Even if you have less flexibility, you may have more meaning and growth levers. I can say that I've had the opportunity to encourage employees to mentor young people during their lunch breaks or participate in organizations like Junior Achievement, mm -hmm. where they work with young people. And I find that they bring back certain values from that experience. You know, they're more empathetic, they're more civil in their communications with their colleagues. And they also, if they're doing it together, they sort of build team among themselves with another common shared experience that's outside of the workplace. I'm a big advocate for these kinds of arrangements where you're doing a social good, but at the same time, I think there's a lot you can learn and develop in the interpersonal skill realm and the mindsets of working with other people through these experiences. Well, and empathy, especially going into, say, a junior achievement or a Meals on Wheels, there are times that the Meals on Wheels especially is often working with people who are economically disadvantaged. If you go to Junior Achievement on a day that they're working with inner city kids, seeing what other people see and feeling what they feel gets back to the, boy, am I grateful that I get to do what I do. I may feel like my work is pretty mundane and annoying, but 
if I look across the range of humans in my community, the people listening to this podcast are probably generally fortunate. Annoyed, but fortunate. <laughs> yeah, you get to see firsthand some of the challenges that people are facing outside of your privileged workspace, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. yeah, this is really important. So we talked about attracting talent. We talked about retaining talent. And mm -hmm. then there's the idea of how do you grow and develop the talent you have in your workplace? I'm thinking about your stars. What do leaders do to support their stars to keep them on board and to keep them growing and maturing in the workplace? So first is identifying who they are and having a good way to assess and measure. You know, some leaders have great intuition and they can tell who's gonna make it. Others have a gut sense that this person's like me, so I'm gonna promote them. And I'm brought in to coach and teach in some cases. Without objective assessments, we are often investing in people who aren't the best choice given the population in that organization. Not bad people, but if I look at who are my top 10, I need a way to identify those because the development, whether it's sending people to do a job share or to shadow a senior executive, all of those things, some of them cost dollars to have an established program, a mentoring program. Others cost time, and the opportunity cost for doing it with the wrong person can be twofold. One, your best people aren't getting it, and if you have the wrong people, the senior executive doesn't want them shadowing them. They put the organization at risk in different ways. So I think it's really important to measure from an opportunity cost and investment cost, and that you don't want to disengage the people who really are your rock stars. Again, we're looking at the workforce differently. So my people who thrived working from home may be different than those that thrived in the office. What do I need now, not three years ago? If I'm promoting the three-year-ago person, I may be looking at the wrong one. I'm all in favor of the rock star identification process <laughs> and maybe even working to formalize that in organizations. You know, I've worked with our HR executives to discuss specifically the folks who I believe are capable of replacing me to develop succession plans. And once I identify those folks through some objective measures, really saying, okay, what can I do to create a professional development plan for you to address the kind mm -hmm. of skills that where I see gaps and opportunities for improvement and supporting that through a mentoring program or some other type of challenging assignment that enables them to practice or get some experience in the workplace in my role and address the need at the same time, their skill or ability need. I strongly agree with that. I think it's a really important process. And you've actually helped create some assessments that do that or modify assessments. Absolutely. I mean, assessments are good, especially if you can get others to provide insight on your skills and abilities, maybe highlight some blind spots, things that you don't see in yourself that others see in it, and even strengths. Others mm -hmm. might perceive strengths in you that you don't perceive in yourself. So I think those tools can be quite effective. Maureen, let's shift gears for a moment. Your fifth trend is about climate change and the impact of climate change on geographic migration. And I think about geographic migration in very broad terms, how that has the potential to impact local cultures, how it can impact and stress a lot of systems in your society, whether it's education, housing, and employment. But it also represents certain opportunities as well. Wanted to get your take on this trend and the impact for leaders. In Columbus, where we're sitting right now, we talked a lot about the Amazon effect. So when we were trying to attract Amazon to build one of their additional headquarters, there was a lot of concern about driving up labor costs and all of the associated issues. What I was talking about here is a little different and a little longer term. We are already seeing studies about where one could live that would be more stable from an environmental perspective. If I'm thinking about building a production plant that requires stability, which most do, would I look at an environment that is geologically stable? Years ago, this was decades ago, we were looking at base realignment and closure we looked at military bases and one person took the perspective, keep it, one person took the perspective of close it. I happen to have a base here in Ohio that looked at recalibration of ICBMs. So we looked at all of the factors and one was seismic stability. So you don't want to be recalibrating ICBMs with nuclear warheads when you're going to have an earthquake, right? right? So you look, so, so in some ways, this is not a new idea. 
if I'm investing large sums of money in a physical plant, do I look at the projections for climate, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods? I personally would. I think about where our offices are, not only close to our clients, but I don't want a second home in a place that's not going to be there in 10 years. So the impact of this migration should have leaders thinking about the physical location of their operations. It probably also has an impact on some of the decisions they're making about whether people work in an office or if there are hybrid options or virtual-only workplaces. I would imagine we also have to think about office space differently. Oh, absolutely. We're seeing now a lot of the folks who were West Coast high-tech folks, big salaries, it's expensive to live in places like San Francisco or LA, migrating to the Midwest. Even my neighborhood, the prices have gone up dramatically because it's an attractive neighborhood, more family-focused, a lot less expensive real estate. You can get a lot more here than you do in San Francisco. The other one that I think will be interesting, and this is emerging more even just recently, is are we going to have states where people choose to live or not live, not because of environment, but because of politics? Oh, interesting. Yeah, migration because of sort of political affiliation or... Pick your issue. Abortion, guns, vaccines. People care about these issues enough to choose where to live. And when we think typically about migration, climate migration, we really think about people crossing national borders. But you're suggesting that even this phenomenon is something we need to consider even within our own border. Yeah, because if you and I had a conversation about politics, which we won't do on air, there are some states we would be more aligned with than others. And at what point do people start making decisions when it's discretionary? Where do I live? I'm thinking about beachfront right now. (laughs) It's 20 something degrees out in central Ohio, and I'm more inclined to be in a warmer climate, to be honest with you. Maureen, trend number six. New technology and mindsets continue to mitigate our current challenges and create opportunities that were never before imagined. Talk about this theme and what it may mean to leaders. Technology, everything from cancer treatments to floating cars. We're looking at all kinds of technology solutions that will solve some of our problems. One of the things that I'm really interested in is this idea of the circular economy. For many of these trends, we've given a lot of effort to how do we build AI? How do we create a circular economy? In many cases, we haven't looked at what is the leadership required to successfully implement it. So I just contributed to a chapter on the circular economy that's being funded by the German government. Most of the book was about how do you create a circular economy? Very little about how do you lead in a way that you can actually implement this great thing that you've designed. And we've seen that for decades in implementing computer systems and enterprise-wide software solutions and other things. How are we updating our mindset? Things like the mind of the scientist. How do I think about my current organization in the context of the community, in the context of the industry, in the context of the supply chain that I'm navigating? So taking one is taking a much more robust systemic view of my job, which is in a company. And in the past, it would have been like, just put your head down and get your stuff done. Now it's, if you're not thinking more holistically, you are likely to miss key factors that will cause you to respond either slowly or wrong. I want to add to this notion that there are leadership capacities that go along with this sort of broad consideration of stakeholders solving bigger problems that are beyond the borders of your organization. Some of the skills that come to mind for me are first convening. You know, the ability to just pull people together, different kind of stakeholders across the system to think about how we might tackle this problem together. The need for me as a leader to create that convening call to talk about why do we need to get together? What is the shared common problem we have here? Let's put that on the table. My ability to persuade them to engage in these kind of conversations and to bring their resources to bear, their unique and distinctive resource to bear on solving these problems. The need for me to earn legitimacy in a community where I'm sort of wedded to one organization, but the solution to this problem crosses it. 
I don't know if you have any additional thoughts about, you know, what are the sort of leadership skills necessary to work across these systems to solve more complex problems today? We could do a whole show on that. And you are brilliant. <laughs> and we probably should. <laughs> well, and you're brilliant at convening. I've met people in your network and you've got an absolutely global, incredibly robust network. My sense is the problems that could be solved in the past by a small group of like-minded people now require more voices and more distinct perspectives. People who look like me and sound like me aren't going to solve the problem. So you pointed to cross-border, cross-functional, cross-industry, cross-sector. So public, private. Governmental, sure. All of these are required to solve almost every problem we have right now. Labor shortage, supply chain problems, political issues. We've got a pandemic. None of those are solved by your organization or mine, even large ones. So we have to find a way to pull people together and look at things like innately collaborative, constantly learning. So the growth mindset, humility, committed to doing the right thing over the optics of being right all the time. These are both mindsets and skills. And we don't talk enough, I don't think, about the mindset that I'll show up and I'll act like I care about you people, but I don't, versus you're authentically cultivating a network. You actually care about these people. Well, if you just take one of your issues, the notion of employment and mm -hmm. the fact that we have an employment crisis and just not enough people and skilled to work certain job, you know, in our, in our mm -hmm. society, you just take a look at that issue. Sometimes for a person to be qualified, they need childcare so that they can get the education necessary, or maybe they're food insecure and they need food and housing as preconditions to even think about getting the education needed to do the, or transportation to get to the learning environment. And then I need to have education that prepares them for that workforce. So it could be that nonprofit organizations address some of the social needs. It could be that employers provide the information about the job qualifications that are required that can be built into a curriculum. It could be that a professional organization provides certification that supports shorter-term opportunities, uh, shorter-term learning needs that support opportunities that are there. And so I only have, as an educational institution, certain tools and abilities to address the problem. I have to work across my borders and boundaries with nonprofits and government organizations who perhaps provide Pell funding for these individuals to pursue educational opportunities and the companies who actually employ our graduates or those who experience our learning. These are really important conditions today for leaders to have a mindset that it's necessary to collaborate with others, that you don't have all the answers, but that together, if you're capable of convening them, we can come up with some really robust solutions. As we think back, one of the times that I thought I needed to have the answers, because that's what we're taught, right? As the leader, you're supposed to, when someone comes to you, you're supposed to be able to say, this is what I do. When I had to pivot from, in my mind, I've got the answer to... How do I engage the person asking the question in solving the problem? And who else do I know who can create a more robust answer than I ever could? We are living in a fantastic time in history, in my view. We have this unique opportunity to plot a future unlike our past, given these unique challenges we face. Leaders today can leave a legacy for generations, depending on how they tackle some of these problems and some of these themes. I'm rather optimistic about our future. What's your sense and take on these themes and the extent to which leaders are prepared for it? Leaders have a precious role. But to your point, there are so many facets in play, elements in play, right, that weren't in play in the past. So we didn't have them as a lever to change. And so for the most effective leaders who are able to look across the landscape identify the levers and do it not robotically like a computer pulling levers, but with compassion, with empathy, and with robust business knowledge. I am not saying that we do things just because they're nice. I think we need to do things that contribute to the health of our systems and the people in the systems. And to your point about technology, I think there were some options that just didn't exist, not even two or three years ago, that I too am incredibly optimistic 
And I also believe that if we're not careful, we can tip the balance in the negative path. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. That's why I do what I do. I think that's why you do what you do. By helping leaders prepare, they will make better decisions and create a better future. Unprepared leaders will make less informed decisions that could lead to suboptimal outputs. My conclusions from this interview is uh, be prepared. Know and develop yourself. Know and develop others. Know your profession and learn to work across borders. Those are some conclusions that I'm deriving from our interview today. If listeners would like to learn more, Maureen, about these trends or contribute constructively to the ideas that can effectively respond to these trends, how would they do that? I can give you information about the Institute. So it's the Innovative Leadership Institute. We have the radio shows. We produce weekly insights. You can follow us on LinkedIn. We have a weekly newsletter. So there's a lot of information going out. We would love to hear your comments back. So on LinkedIn, connect with me, message me, make comments on the weekly newsletters. I respond to those personally. And I love to hear what people are seeing and thinking. That's how I am able to continue to respond to your interests. And Christopher, how would they find you? You could find me on LinkedIn at Christopher Washington, or you could respond to one of my posts on Twitter at Dr. Underscore C.L. Washington. D-R-C-L Washington. That's correct. D-R underscore C-L Washington. Any closing comments for our listeners? The scale of the change that's possible for us on the planet is significant. Everyone that's listening has an impact on someone and something. This is a call to action for people. Some folks are doing their best work and they're going to keep doing that. I think there are other people who may not have felt like this was theirs to do. My invitation is for everyone, there is something that is yours to do, and it matters that every single person right now will make decisions in the world that matter. And the invitation is do your best work. Continue to learn and grow, as Christopher said. Make the biggest positive impact you can make in the world each day. And some of those steps are going to be small. But over the course of these transitions, every single small step matters. Maureen Metcalf, it's always a pleasure being on your show. Thank you, Christopher. I deeply admire the work you do and the person you are. Thank you for sharing your stories and your point of view with our listeners. And to the listeners, thank you for joining. We encourage you to like and share this and be the best person you can be. We're stepping into 2022. It promises to be a year unlike we will be able to even forecast. Keep listening, keep growing, and keep contributing. Mm -hmm.